This season of the Downtown Den podcast, we are focusing on inspirational female business leaders. And on Friday, the 10th of March, we're hosting our annual Women in Business Awards at the Crown Plaza Hotel. We'll be celebrating the best in business from across the Liverpool City region. And if you haven't voted for your favourite female business leader yet, go to our website, all the W's downtownandbusiness.com, have a look at the nominees. And vote for your favourite. If you've not booked a ticket yet, what are you waiting for? It's a great day, a great occasion. We'd love to see you there. Tickets are going fast. Again, get to our website, downtownandbusiness.com. Book your tickets today. So, top of the list, when I was looking for inspirational female leaders, um, was this week's guest, Bev Craig leader of Manchester City Council. It's fair to say that Bev was fairly unknown to me and most of the Manchester business community when she took on the leadership role about 12 months or so ago. And she succeeded Sir Richard Lease. Sir Richard had been in post for about 99 years. He was very well known to all of us who'd been involved in business and politics in the city. And it's 30-something, looks about 20-something, and someone who'd really focused during her political career up until that point on more social and community aspects of the political agenda. There was some concern, for sure, and a little bit of trepidation as to how that transition between this razor-focused, economically-driven Sir Richard Lease to this young Labour Party book that not many of us had heard of. Anyway, she's very quickly allayed any fears. She's been an absolute breath of fresh air. She's spoken at three, four, maybe five downtown and business events. And the biggest compliment I can give her, I suppose, is that that transition has been seamless. In this conversation, you'll hear Bev talking about her vision for the future of her great city, her passion for Manchester United, um, but also um, a little bit about what was a really fascinating background, how she got to Manchester, challenges she had with the sexuality, and we even discuss a little bit about Ireland. This is a great conversation. Hope you enjoy it. It's me, Frank McKenna, Chief Exec, Group Chairman of Downtown and Business, in conversation with the leader of Manchester City Council, Bev Craig. Hi, welcome to the second episode of Season 2 of the Downtown Den podcast. Of course, in this season, we are focusing on female leaders, successful women who've been in leadership roles, had an influence and had success in the industry sectors that they're involved in. Or, in today's case, uh, with Bev Craig, the leader of Manchester City Council, the influence that they've had in politics. Delighted that Bev is in the downtown den with me today. So welcome to the den. Thank you. Good to be with you. <laughs> so listen, the first thing I'll say, and you know this, is Manchester was used to, for a quarter of a century, maybe more, um, two guys uh, running the show. 
very successfully. So we had Sir Howard Bernstein, and then obviously he retired a few years ago to be replaced by Joanne. Uh, and then Sir Richard decided that he was going to uh, go on and do other things and leave the Manchester City Council ship. And when you were elected, the first thing that people said was, she's only 30-something. How can she possibly be ready to leave Manchester City Council? Now, I'm happy to say, I think it's about 12 months later, maybe a bit longer. Um, those questions aren't being asked. But I do want to ask you um, about that challenge of not only being the first female leader of Manchester, but also being somebody who was seen as a little bit of a baby age-wise in terms of taking that role. Um, yeah, no, and absolutely. It's been one of those, um, should we say, journeys that, that over the last sort of twelve months, um, the city's gone on as well as as well as I've got on. And it's fair to say. Um, I mean, from my perspective, so I was first elected in twenty eleven. Um, when I was first elected as a councillor, um, I was twenty six at the time, so about to turn twenty seven. Um, and at the time, I was the youngest on the council. So I think for all of my political career. Um, I've been fairly used to being one of one of the younger people in the room, you know, and it's, it's no secret. The average age of a, a local councillor nationally works out about 61 years old. So um, I, I think I do look and sound fairly different to um, a lot of our peers across the country. Um, what I would say, though, is in, in the 11 years that I was a councillor, I've held loads of different positions. I've been a cabinet member. I've gone on to be deputy leader. Um, I think the bit that was different, so those that worked with me, so in the health and care sector or later in the stuff that I did as deputy leader, were pretty used to working with me and knew what they got. Um, and that, that allayed any, any, any fears that they would have around age. And I think, I suppose I'd just reflect that the confidence of that then helped. So, you know, I knew through my track record that people would be able to say, okay, actually, once you get to know her, once you hear what she's about, things might shift. Um, but, but look, I make no secret of, you know, I had no end of, of football analogies over the course of, you know, the last, I'd probably say the first, my first six months, um, you know, and I, and I think you can see the obvious examples that's come. The difference, though, between me um, and, and Richard is that I am actually a United fan. So, <laughs> which, which probably up until October, not many people would openly admit. Um so, so I was quite used to walking into a room and saying, oh, you know, people said to me, is this the next David Moyes of football? You know, is she the equivalent? So being a United fan, you're kind of able to turn that on the head slightly and say, well, how do you know he wasn't Ron Atkinson and I'm Sir Alex Ferguson? <laughs> and you don't necessarily associate that level of sort of ballsy confidence from a young woman. Um, so it's fair to say once the Ron Atkinson, Sir Alex analogies were made, Thankfully, that one's died a death, um, and, and no longer am I the David Moyes of local government. <laughs> and I think that it is fair to say, isn't it? You've um, said yourself, you know, the city's gone on, um, and so much has happened uh, over the last twelve months or so since you took over uh, as leader. But I think the the other thing that perhaps shocked people in a sense, surprised people pleasantly, so um, was your openness to engage with business. Um, because again, and possibly because of the things that you'd involved yourself with, particularly 
since you were elected in 2011. You know, business might not have been front and centre of that stuff. Um, but what has impressed me is how much you've wanted to get engaged with business and the private sector. You know, you're very quick to, to kindly accept invitations from downtown. I know you've done something uh, with other business organisations as well. Um, and I haven't noticed, you know, the, the biggest compliment I can give to, to you and Joanne actually is it's been seamless. You know, we haven't really noticed any difference. As you say, the city's just gone on. It's had the momentum and that's continued. Um, so in terms of your knowledge of the private sector uh, and why you're, you know, keen and enthusiastic to continue that, that partnership, where, where does that come from? Um, I think I suppose the fundamental understanding that if Manchester is to do well, the economy is at its heart, you know, and we, we can have um, peripheral, peripheral kind of ideological discussions as to ways that you control the economy at a national level and national politics does that a lot. But if you want cities and places like Manchester to thrive, fundamentally, you have to have a strong and growing economy. Um, and I, is if, if, if as a council, you don't take that interventionist role. So if you just say, well, actually, I'm only in charge of the budget, I'm in charge of the services at my disposal, let's just leave the economy to evolve as the way the market does. You, you seed kind of your ability to, 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 to lead and, and, and to share that. So I think I would say also, I've been um, really heartened and I think pleasantly surprised in the other way. Um, that, that business has been so um, quick to to accept, you know, that the offer and to make the offer right to me. And I, I think it has worked both ways. And I think the thing that, that I give a lot of thought to was, you know, you talked about the seamless transition. Very, very little of that tends to happen by accident. Um, so, so one of one of the things that that, that was quite considered was around um, if, if you're a believer in incremental change, you know, kind of evolution rather than revolution, so to speak, there's always going to be things that you're going to want to do differently and things that will happen differently, areas of focus, um, you know, different types of priorities. But you also have to have the self-confidence to recognise that your predecessors have done a really good job. Um, and actually, there has to be an element of how you can leave your own ego at the door to be able to confidently accept actually Manchester's journey up till now has led us in a really positive path. What does the next journey for the next 20 years look like? Um, and that's where that, that notion of stability, you, you know, and I'll, I'll joke, there's been three prime ministers and God knows how many cabinet ministers in the meantime. And it is quite funny because I do have to send them a letter. So um, one of the things you do is you send this lovely letter saying congratulations on your job. I hope you're going to do X, Y, and Z for Manchester. Being to work with you, um, and there was, in fairness, one poor bloke that just emailed me back and said, "Well, I'm not going to be in the job tomorrow. Do you want me just to forward it to the next one?" <laughs> so I have prided myself in stability, you know, on, on the stability front in in an era where the mo modern equivalent of Tipex has had letters going out left, right, and centre. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. as you say, it's been a fairly turbulent time at national level, that's for sure. Just pick up on something you said there, because as I mentioned it in my intro, Beth, that this series very much focusing on uh, successful female business leaders, role models, people who've been successful in the path that they've chosen. And you said, uh, interestingly, 
you've got to accept that you've inherited pretty solid positive agenda. Uh, and you've also got to accept that you've got to leave your ego at the door. Do you think it's easier for women to do that than men? Um, p- potentially. Um, I also think that it, it, it's not easy for politicians to do that because it, in, in many ways our personal brand centres on, on our ego. Um, and I'd say within politics, not just in this country, but, but, but across Europe particularly, and we've seen some of it in America, um, you don't have many people that openly admit when things aren't going so well. So, so as a sector, it, it's not it's not culturally the norm to be able to go in and say, actually, this isn't all about me, because we, we live in an era, you know, post Clinton, post Blair, when in politics it is theoretically supposed to be all about me. Um, I think it probably comes from two places. Um, the, the first is that I think it can be um, easier for some women to be able to do that. But I think there needs to be ingredients in place that let them do that because too often you see women that are sucked into um, an inherently macho culture and for them to do well and for them to progress, they have to almost kind of repeat the behaviours that are around them to do well. Um, you know, and, and, and there, there are elements of, thankfully, as, as, as women's football games grow, you know, that's a little bit more accessible to people. Um, but but there are elements of, you know, I, I can think in years gone by and there will have been women that will have pretended to like a particular football team just to be able to have some of the banter that happens at that three minutes at the beginning of the meeting where you talk about the weekend and what's happened to your team. Um, so so I, I think it can be. Um, but I also think that there has to be kind of a bit of a cultural shift. And I think we're starting to see it around what good leaders look like. Um, but But I think... I think I suppose what 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 a good style, but also what a good personal brand looks like is is beginning to shift, um, and that's where some of some of the unhealthy bits of ego are kind of being a little bit phased out. But there does have to be self confidence, um, and we shouldn't ever conflate ego with self confidence. Sometimes, interesting. And, and let's just stick with the football analogy for a moment. But um, if you take football management and you look at Gareth Southgate who's without question you know whether he's won anything or not he's been the most successful in the manager since Sir Alf Ramsey back in 1966 and he strikes me as a person who's authentic who's got a different management approach to previous people in that job and to what we would look at as the archetypal football manager and Again, if you look at what's happened in our national politics, you know, we've gone from Boris Johnson, Jeremy Corbyn, very populist characters, to Rishi Sunak and Keir Starmer. Now, I, I sort of said in a blog I wrote this week, give us a bit of boring in 2023 for our politicians because I, I know, but we, we, thought, we thought we'd have one. We didn't think we'd have two. <laughs> yeah. And that's not fair, actually. Um, I think I think I will say in Keir's defence in the flesh, um, he is much more engaging and actually, dare I say it for a politician, fairly funny. Um, he but is. What you He's got a great sense of humour. But, but yeah. no, I, I take your point. I think stability, and I, I think we're in a phase. People just have too much politics. Like, um, in many ways, people want to live their lives without knowing the ins and outs as to who's in the cabinet and who's falling out with who and, and how things are running. Um, but I, th- I, th- I think Gareth's a really interesting example because you could see him being in that. If you think about 
comparable business leaders or politicians or people in public life that you can see. You certainly in that sort of bring your whole self to work camp. Um, and I think generationally, though, that's what's needed. And I think, you know, you start to see a trend in some of the businesses that are doing well, because I think the old settlement that we had where you enter the working world, you frankly put up with whatever crap's thrown your way, you work hard, you progress, you imitate some of the behaviours you've seen, the person at the top gives you a bollocking when it's not good enough, um, and everybody goes on this this kind of you know, constant merry-go-round. We're starting to see that with, with, with younger people, but also post-COVID, I think, has, has accelerated it, where actually people recognise that mostly they have choices, um, and, and start to make some of those value judgments of, well, if I'm working 50 hours a week, paid for 35, um, and have to pretend to be something else whilst I'm at work, um, when do I get to do the stuff that I did during lockdown, which involves, I don't know, going for a run in the morning or picking the, the, the kids up in the afternoon. So, so I think leadership has to evolve um, as society evolves. Otherwise, we run the risk in, in, in 10 or 15 years' time of those that don't adapt um, not doing well. Mm. Uh, and just in terms of, of that leadership style that you talk about there, um, you've gone into um, an executive team, people again who've been used to a certain staff, and you know, you and I are both big admirers of Sir Richard, but he would be the first to acknowledge. He's different to Bev Craig, um, and not just in terms of gender. Um, what's the sort of message that you get when you take that big role and you do have a little bit of, I've got to prove myself here. What was the sort of attitude and the messages that you took to Joanne, her team, and then to the rest of the Labour group in terms of saying, this, this is the way I want to transition the leadership? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so in many ways, it, it sort of went, I guess, the nature of politics, isn't it? It kind of went the other way around. Um, so, so the way that you select as a, as a, as a council, your new leader, for, for those that aren't in the ins and outs of local government politics. So in Manchester, there's 96 councillors in total. Uh, the Labour group have got 91 of them. So as the biggest group, they get to pick who the leader of the council is. Um, when Richard said that he was going, um, there's a number of people put their hats in the ring. So you go through this process of kind of convincing people one on one, written statements, CVs, um, and then it all culminates in kind of a final hustings where people vote on it. So, so I think at that point, there is a bit of an ability to set out um, a broader stall, um, but you don't necessarily go into this, the specifics of how you're going to deliver it. But what it does is it gives you a mandate. Um, and, and it means that then, when successful, you're able to go to the the, 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 the council chief executive and say, right, you know, it's me. <laughs> you don't really have a choice that it's me. Um, so, so this is going to how, how it's going to work. And I think, I think there was an intentional um, play, play with Richard and myself to make sure that there was enough time for me to get my feet under the table and to be able to spend a bit of time reflecting and making the assessments about things that went well, the things that you would change. Um, and that's why we had that sort of overlap period where um, I was selected by my group to become leader in October and didn't take up until the 1st of December. And I think that, that that transition has been key, actually, because that meant that when December happened, I was really clear that, OK, we're going to refresh our housing strategy. 
but actually the areas that I want you to improve on are numbers of genuinely affordable homes, what we do around our carbon footprint, um, and how we explain that to the public. So, so it lets you be quite clear, but bring people with you at the same time. And as much as Manchester is seen, rightly so, as the blueprint for the way cities ought to be run, led, managed, as I say, it's had 30 years really of sustainable growth, great partnerships between the public and private sector, so many great news stories during those three decades and perhaps more now. You will be conscious of the fact that the criticism that is levelled is that, yes, we've rebuilt our city centre. Yes, commercially, it looks fantastic. We've got great investment, but we haven't done enough for our indigenous population. And would it be fair to say that the priorities of the new leadership team, if I can describe you and the executive actually as that, is to now try and make sure that all of those great things in terms of regeneration, in terms of that investment, the people of Manchester start to really benefit from that in future? Um, I think that's part of it. But I suppose I'd, I'd, I'd take that narrative and, and, and tweak it slightly. So so from my view, if you think about um, some of the cities, park the city centre for one minute, but you think about some of the city-wide, so population 600,000 spanning from the airport all the way up to um, the M60 with Moston and High Rayleigh. If you think about where kind of the place-based regeneration happened, where stuff that mattered in people's communities, the government turned off the tap for that in 2010. So so I don't think it is fair on Manchester's story to be able to say, actually, um, there hasn't been a will for that, um, because I think there has, but it's been small um, and it's been certainly not featured in, in grant funding that's come down and difficult to borrow to be able to do that, particularly for some of our estate regeneration. So so overnight, if I think about some of the stuff in East Manchester, like that was just wiped out completely. So so I think that's part of it. But I think there is a perception challenge for Manchester that's, that's precisely that. When people think about Manchester, they think about our city centre. Um, they think about you know the Renica Towers that have gone up off Dean's Gate, and they think about what they see as as, as, as the economic growth in the centre. I'd probably say that part of that has been entirely necessary to give us the platform to do the next bit, um, because actually you can't have a city or a city region that wants to be internationally competitive without it. And in a global world, you need to be internationally competitive if you want to at least in some way survive the future and become um, more more sustainable. So, so the economy is important, but I think how, how we talk about what the economy does um, for Manchester people is, is, is definitely the big focus that I have. Because I think, I think we nailed the narrative that actually you need um, strong economic growth in key sectors to be able to drive forward a place and to make sure that you're increasing your income and you're attracting talent. You know, and if I think, well, I moved to Manchester in 2003, you know, the population's grown by over 150,000 since then. The number of jobs in the city has jumped um, by a similar amount. Um, you know, and the world is very different from me thinking it was posh to go to the Dutch pancake house um, for, for, for a game. Um, but, but what we haven't been able to do, I don't think, is make a really clear case all of the time 
that we care about Mancunians' access to those jobs. Because for me, going forward, um, actually, you know, what we have to think about is that we still want to be um, internationally competitive. So we still want talent from across the world to choose to come and base themselves in Manchester. But we also want a kid growing up in Harper Hay or growing up in Moss Side to not just have the self-belief that they can be those leaders and have those jobs, but to see the models, to see the examples of people that have already done it. Um, and, and that's why the key for me um, probably focuses around some of the basics. So early years in education, we've seen some real, real positives around education in Manchester over the last 15 years. But the challenge that we have um, is, is, is COVID has been really problematic um, and held back, particularly our pre-primary school kids, um, really significantly. We've got some work that we're going to do on that ourselves, um, but we need some government action on it. Seconds around housing. So making sure we're clear about those those, those mixes. You know, if I, I speak to, to, to colleagues from before my time, you know, back under the, 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 the 2000s, there was still council housing, social housing in Manchester, in bits of Manchester that they couldn't let, bits that stayed empty. So actually building homes and improving neighbourhoods has to go hand in hand. And that's why we've linked that together in our housing strategy. Um, but then the final thing is making the case that we're not just the city centre. So one of my big things has been, you know, think about Withenshaw Town Centre. If Withenshaw wasn't in um, the city of Manchester as a local authority borough, you know, that's that's a town in and of itself. Um, that's something that, that has the same opportunities that every other town centre should have. Um, and that's why we've embarked on its redevelopment or take ownership of the, the shopping centre to be able to do it ourselves. So I guess what I'm trying to say is that there's no shyness about growing our economy, but there's a, there's a, there will always be a challenge for me as to how it's grown, where it's grown, and who benefits from it. And I think they're the right questions to ask. There's certainly um, no shortage of ambition from what you've been outlining in the conversation so far. Um, but you are a Labour leader. You've already suggested some of the challenges that have been imposed on cities and local authorities through austerity and other cuts that the government would suggest they needed to uh, make. But as a council leader, you've got to be pragmatic enough to work with the government, whichever colour. You were saying earlier, you know, you've had to write 99 letters to new ministers this year, uh, congratulating them on the new posts. Um, has that been an easy thing to do? Because... Again, one of the things that is admired from outside of Manchester is that pragmatic approach, is that way in which the city appears to have been able to collaborate with different coloured governments. And always, it seems to people, as I say, from the outside looking in, be able to get some extra resource, extra investment to do some of the fantastic things that you've delivered. So, so, so I'd say that there, there always, there should always be from any um, leader of a council or a city that if you see yourself truly as the leader of a place rather than of an organisation or of a party, then you know my view is it's your fundamental duty to do the best for your area, um, and you kind of have to park some of your own ideological qualms about things if it is the best thing um, for your area. And that's why, you know, there, there are times when we have engaged with government and, and, and good has come out of it. 
you know, we're, we're quite open about that. You think about devolution, you think about kind of some of the stuff at the back end um, of, of Osborne where, you know, you may have to hold your nose over austerity, but then to have a sensible grown-up discussion around devolution and the integration of services leads to that. Um, I, I guess there's, there's two things for me, though. I think that um, that has begun, I think, to break down in a way that historically perhaps um, wasn't wasn't there. And there's a couple of exceptions um, in the current cabinet that, that have moved to one side. Um, but I'll tell you a not-so-funny story. So um, September, we saw the opening of Mayfield Park. Beautiful, first park in the city centre, public park in the city centre for over 100 years. Um, lovely, got some really fun slides, um, kind of the carbon um, work's been fantastic on it restoration of old steel bridges, all of that stuff, really beautiful and will be a key component of, of, of driving change in that area. Um, so pretty happy off the back of that, you know, we've just opened a new park, we're a new leader, pretty buzzing. Get a letter through from government saying, hey, we've launched this National Parks Fund. Congratulations, you've won a park. And I'm like, oh, yeah, bro, right, let's, let's do it again. Nice one. Now, it may feel cost me about 25 million to build all in. It's just what it costs if you're going to do all of these things. The National Parks Fund was £9 million. And in my little award letter, that was like, hey, congratulations, you won a park. I won £76,000. Wow. Now, I'm not going to build you a park for £76,000. Like, we might have a, a pocket park in the corner, like with a bench in it, but, but, I suppose I make light of something that has become, I think, so fundamental to where we are. You know, we, we talk about the competitive nature um, of bidding and pitting one place off against another as part of the levelling up bids. Um, but actually, it's something deeper about control. Um, and if you have to have that level of control over a £9 million park, you know, either it's spin or you've got issues with letting go. Um, or, or this is another one that will tickle you. Um, there is a national public sector toilets fund. So if you wanted to have a loo in the city centre, you could bid into this national fund that genuinely people in Whitehall were all set up in a little team to score you and to administer the grants to build your toilet. So, so I think I think there's always a case of doing business and doing the best for your city. You know that that's a given, and we're having some of that with, with HS2 at the minute. So, but but th- there's also um, times when it will lead you into a little bit of confrontation. But if you if you think about it from the right place, so you're a leader of place, you're doing the best for your area. Um, you have to take the positives with the negatives. And I suppose there's a smart way and a constructive way I can put it that. Way if I can describe it like that, of making your point without necessarily having to fall out with everybody right right up. Because I think, again, I'm in a city uh, today talking to you, Liverpool. You'd never guess that's where I'm from originally. Um, But, you know, our city, I would say, has suffered with that in the past. You know, the rights and wrongs, you can argue all day. But ultimately, the city has, has been a victim of those sort of big political fallouts and grandstanding, which people have done for the right reasons. And I'm not going to criticise those personalities. But nevertheless, I think if you look, as I say, at that pragmatic and perhaps a little bit more constructive, grown-up, smarter approach 
to that relationship. I think you can see the benefits of that. If you look at the West Midlands now, Tansy Street's obviously a Conservative mayor, but when Keir Starmer becomes Prime Minister in 18 months' time, so I should say if, but I hope and when, um, I don't think you'll see a, a step change from Andy Street in terms no. of the program. And, and I don't think you'll see, so, so places like Stoke, they've got a Conservative leader, um, she's very ambitious, she's got great, um, ambitious not personally, but for her place. You know, you'll, you'll still see that, I think, kind of interaction with the government of a different colour. So I would say if, if, if Stoke stayed Conservative and Starmer won the next election, um, in some ways, Stoke could be the conservative Manchester in that sense, about the ability to make your case um, for what your area needs um, and, and, you know, being able to, to basically take it to anybody that will listen um, is, is, is part of your job. I suppose the, the other thing I'd say, and, and the thing that probably, if you think about Manchester's success, part of it, of course, is, is, is some of the economic growth that we've seen in the rebuilding. Um, but I think the bit that gets over, overlooked is sometimes perhaps people from other places can critique kind of Manchester's sense of self, I guess. So it's that projected self-confidence. Um, but, but that's not about kind of place-based arrogance. That's about an intentional strategy of bringing your residents with you to really be as equally ambitious and as excited about your place. And if you think about how Manchester's gone through those phases of urban renewal, getting your people on board um, about, you know, building a city that's going to punch above its weight in the modern world engenders perhaps just as much confidence as a regional relocation from a European business. So so I, th- I think for places, you know, part of the challenge is, of course, who they engage with from, from, from a national political context. But, but the wider challenge, I think, for every place is to have that clear shared vision. You know, not everybody in Manchester agrees with it, but the vast majority of people through both council and political engagement with the people get the broad principles of where you're going. And that makes it much easier to be able to negotiate with government because it, it, it takes the politics out of it for them as well. Mm. And the other thing that perhaps is overlooked in terms of Manchester's success story is that you've had a lot of consistent personalities involved in those strategic discussions and that delivery and those plans. And now I'm not just thinking about people like Sir Richard, people like Howard, who of course everybody knows, and then Graham Stringer before that. You, you know, I'm old enough to, to remember the days Graham was leader. But then you've had a people like Angie Robinson, who at the start of this process is the chief executive of the Chamber of Commerce, was hugely influential in galvanising uh, the business community. You've got people like the Oglesby's and Bruntwood who've been around for an awfully long time now. And, and that is something that, sadly, particularly in terms of political leadership, you haven't necessarily seen in other cities. And I'm not just talking about Liverpool there. You can say that about most of the cities, most of the core cities, where you've seen change of chief execs, change of leaders. That stability must be a plus as well, that mustn't it? It is. I mean, it is. And, you know, people have joked about kind of all sorts of, you know, Manchester been seen as kind of an island of more like German stability than the UK stability at the moment. <laughs> I think, yeah. you, you know, it's always a risk um, when an outgoing leader leaves, particularly when they've been there for such a long time. 
um, you know, and, and, and there's always a risk that the person that comes afterwards does leave the job fairly quickly. Um, and I think it's it's fair to say that that weighs on everyone's minds. Um, you know, there were people that advised me, I don't know, a year or two ago. No, God, I think I'm taking years off my life now. Probably two or three years ago. Um, that, you know, when, when Richard goes, it probably would be wise for me to sit the next one out because the next one probably won't last very long. And then you get to come in and be the stable one afterwards. So, so there is a bit of a learned behaviour thing that goes on around some of that instability. Um, but it comes back to my point around the business community and kind of how they've been able to buy into it, but also the voluntary community sector as well, which has been just as strong in terms of their support. Um, is, is, is that actually, I think for a vast majority of, of businesses in the city, they're not really that fussed. Um, what colour my party political membership, um, card is. But, but what they are interested in, am I going to stick around? Is it worth getting to know me? Do they need to, um, listen to what my priorities are? Or was somebody else going to come in, um, with something new? And, and I think, I think I, I often do reflect it's been a fairly, um, good group effort in that sense. So, you know, the political maturity of my group in kind of how they've approached it, who they've selected and how they've selected them. But then also kind of, you know, it is a team effort in that regard around kind of what sensible political leadership looks like. Yeah. It's been great to you in the fact about politics of Manchester. We're going to take a very short break. And then we're just going to spend about 10 or 15 minutes talking about your fascinating backstory. Because uh, although I've heard you speaking on a number of other people's podcasts, and I know that great story, I want you to share that with the Downtown Den audience as well. So stay with us. We'll be back in a minute. New Year, new start, and I'm sure that you've got resolutions, one of which will be to grow your business to the best that it can be. Well, if you're not a member of Downtown in Business yet, you're not going to be able to do that. What are you waiting for? We've got a series of events that are absolutely fantastic. Right across the country, you'll meet decision makers, business leaders, entrepreneurs, some of the most successful people in the country. You'll be able to influence discussion. You'll be able to talk directly to the decision makers, to the politicians, what you think their priorities should be. Most importantly, you'll be able to connect with like-minded people, sell more stuff, get more business done. What are you waiting for? Join Downtown in Business today. Go to our website, all the W's, downtownandbusiness.com and sign up. You will not be disappointed. 2023, if it's your year, you're going to have to be involved in the fastest growing business organisation in the UK. Welcome back to the second part of episode two, season two, of the Downtown Dev podcast. And uh, I'm talking to the leader of Manchester City Council, Beth Craig. Obviously, in the first part, we naturally focused on a job and um, what she sees as Manchester's futures. Comments, of course, about what's happening in politics locally, regionally, and nationally. But I just wanted to have 10 minutes or so, Beth on your career journey, because uh, as I mentioned, it's, it's quite a fascinating story that you've got to tell. And, uh, and I'm going to shoot up and just let you tell it. You know, you're building me up now, I'm going to have to deliver. <laughs> um, now, so, I mean, I, I think 
I suppose where to begin. So, so I've talked a lot about coming to Manchester in 2003. Um, and I, I think probably as my political career has, has evolved, I've probably gained um, more confidence in talking about my background in terms of both how it shaped my politics, but also particularly in terms of how it frames my view on, on service delivery and how people experience the world. So um, came came to Manchester in 2003 for university um, I'm quite open about the fact I've never been to Manchester, saw it on TV, thought it looked fun, um, and picked university choices accordingly. Um, the first in my family to not just go to uni, but I suppose to, to do GCSEs, probably university probably was never really um, something at the forefront of our minds growing up. Um, and, you know, it's it's fair to say my, my family still all live in the council estate I was brought up on. Um, they're all still there, just outside Belfast, getting on with life. Um, but but it's definitely, you know, if I think about how I think about poverty or I think about injustice or equalities, um, all the way through to sometimes the inability of public sector services to actually deliver um, what people need in putting people first, um, it's certainly been a really important part of my journey. Uh, and just in terms of your personal challenges the things that you had to cope with in terms of moving into a new city then finding your way in that place as a student as a young person what was that like because again you know we do see a lot of people don't we who sort of come to a big city whether it be Manchester whether it be Birmingham London Liverpool and they crash and burn you know they end up back home within six weeks Bit. I mean, I mean, I'll throw in a work stat, but for both of our universities in Manchester, now over fifty percent retention for the graduates at, at both unis. But for, for me, Manchester was something different. Actually, um, for, for a while, Manchester was about an opportunity. Um, it was a chance to to go somewhere, um, particularly in relation to my sexuality. Actually, you know, I saw queerest folk on the TV. Thought, right, not many many aren't gay people in and around where I am. I want to go to Manchester. So, so for quite some time, I'd probably seen my route to university um, as a way out, as, as an escape. Um, so probably came at it from a very different perspective. So it was a massively exciting opportunity for me um, to come to a place uh, where nobody knew me, to be able to kind of start afresh. And, and that's daunting to a lot of people. But I suppose if I reflect, um, I made the perhaps ill-advised decision um, to come out uh, at the age of 14. And and by kind of 15, 16, 17, it's fair to say it wasn't going very well. Um, It wasn't entirely always well received. Um, But if you're going to come out in a rough, loyalist, working-class council estate eight miles outside of Belfast, you probably should have foresaw some of these challenges. Um, You know, but but I I think growing up in a place where um, interaction between people from different sides wasn't a common thing. Um, I'd say my, my world view actually was shook. Um, so so came out, was having loads of problems, you know, kind of stuff happening where, where, where I was from, wasn't massively accepted um, by my local community. Got involved in, in sort of social justice campaigning, rights-based stuff um, in Belfast, um, and suddenly, you know, and I, I make light of it, but probably up until the age of 14, um, 15, um, I think I'd probably only ever knowingly 
had a conversation about religion with a Catholic once. Um, and that was in a cross-community programme where like, I loved dinosaurs. Um, my mum didn't believe in dinosaurs because they're not in the Bible. So it's was, it was a bit of a challenge. She's, she's come around to the fact that maybe dinosaurs could have existed. So my, my granny would buy me these, um, sounds dodgy this, these uh, dinosaur books on, on the quiet. So I'd have to go to my granny's house to put all my little ring binders together of my dinosaur books. So we went on this cross-party, kind of cross-community trip to the museum that was hosting the dinosaurs. But you were only allowed to see the dinosaurs if a Protestant and Catholic held hands and uh, we did some, some little cross-community exercise with circle. So that had probably been, been, been my exposure to difference up until that point. And then at the age of 15, all of the liberal stuff that was happening in Belfast were from Catholic nationalist communities. You know, nationalist campaigns were at the forefront of, you know, the, the abortion rights movement, women's rights, racial equality and LGBT rights. And the only political party at the time that would even speak to us was Sinn Féin. So that sort of turns on its head a whole person's worldview for quite some time. And I've kind of kept that with me um, in, in politics, actually. And I suppose it speaks a bit to the pragmatism point, the bit why I'm a fan of grey in a world where politicians have to be black and white. Um, but but you can be surprised where your allies come from. So by the time I moved to Manchester, you know, I was, I was desperate to get to somewhere that, you know, a big city, um, really diverse, you know, and, and, and came and thrived. It was brilliant. Uh, and it sounds a, a bit corny, this, but it is a welcoming city, isn't it? It is a city that can put its arms around you and you can feel at home. I mean, even with my accent, I get a lovely welcome when I come to Manchester. Is that again part of the attraction for the city yeah and, and i think intentional so so the, the slightly twee kind of mancunian by birth or choice um is it, it's it's a feeling first and foremost but but it's also a, a political statement so if you look at our census data um around about 30 percent of mancunians manchester residents were born outside of the uk so if you're to be a, a successful, diverse city and genuinely at ease with itself, then you have to accept that kind of there can be no monopoly in saying, you know, you're from here. Um, and, and so I think, you know, and it's not to say I didn't, didn't have my challenges, you know, I was a victim of a homophobic attack on a bus in Piccadilly Gardens, you know, and I'm not saying that I moved to this um, fantastic utopia, but it was certainly a place that... Um, I got to feel much more at ease with myself because the city was at ease with itself. Is it easier now for gay people in terms of general acceptance, um, I, general I, day-to-day living? I, I, would, I, would, I would say so. You know, if, if I think, yeah, sure, there's, there's still a lot more to be done, but if I think by the conversations that I would have had as a 16, 17-year-old, you know, that with 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 my peers, so with other kind of LGB young people, you know, even back then, the conversations focusing on, you know, do you think we'd ever be able to be in a legally recognised kind of lovely loving relationship? You know, that that kind of stuff. Um, whereas if you told me that I could be open about my sexuality and I'm running a city, I probably would have thought you were some kind of alien. So. You know, admittedly, Northern Ireland is behind where the U- kind of mainland UK was at at the time. But, but I think, sure, there's some challenges. Um, but I think, I think society is, is changing for the better, um, in, in lots of ways, actually. 
Um, and my mum jokes, it's quite quite funny. So she's used to, by her own admission, struggled a bit with it for a while. She now jokes that I'm, 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 the, I'm the, but not just the most successful kid, but the one that causes her the least trouble. Um, <laughs> and I would say that, and this has been a bit of a reflection for me, so I probably got into this, this fairly easy, easy place. Um, and it was only really been when I got elected as leader that it sort of brought home to me that people are still interested in that kind of stuff. So, you know, so I, I've said, yeah, sure, you know, I'm the first leader, the first openly, it's a woman, first openly gay um, leader, first openly gay woman, whatever. But but actually, the fact that that makes the news um, and not the fact that I've got three degrees and could tell you all that I want to tell you about economic and transport strategy probably shows two things. The first is that it still does matter to people, positively and negatively. Um, and then the second is that we're not quite um, at the point where it's just ordinary um, and and not remarkable. Nonetheless, in that space, sadly, we do need rail models. And what a fantastic rail model you are. And as you've mentioned, there has been progress in terms of societal improvements, in terms of all the sorts of challenges, issues that you faced growing up. But you mentioned Ireland, and, and I just wanted to get your quick thoughts on what's happening there, because post-Brexit, we started to see rumblings, uh, I can put it that way, no more strongly. You'll be closer to this than I, Beth, because you've still got family there, of those conflicts beginning to potentially rear their head again there's clearly going to be some challenges and difficulties if the Brexit negotiations do go the wrong way. But what sort of feedback are you getting back from home on those things? So, so I think, I mean, the, the, my all, my always my starting principle is that I've not, um, the, the, the couple of exceptions that I've made over the years, I've tried not to, to venture too much into Northern Irish politics because in my view, I, I, I left and, and I don't really do much to contribute to making Northern Irish politics more progressive. So, so I'm always a little bit kind of careful and couched. But I'd say a couple of things. I think there's a generational shift. Um, I think, I think both in terms of young people, um, and people under 40, actually, um, it not being as top, a top priority for them. But I think there's also a shift then, um, in terms of, um, the priorities that they're setting. So, so for some time, some parties have thrived, um, kind of pandering, um, to, to elements of identity and culture and, on the other side. Um, and they've not talked about jobs. They've not talked about economic strategy. They've not talked about good transport or building more houses or opening new libraries or any of the things that, that people actually think, well, actually, why can't we have more of that? So I think that's part of it. Um, and then the second thing I'd say is that where, where tensions exist too often, um, and more often than not, actually, they tend to be class-based. Um, and, and there are actually parallels, um, particularly in some, some, some loyalist communities, that it's always poor working class areas um, where some of these tensions are, are, are fanned um, and the flames are lit. Um, and I think there's a lesson in, in if we think about how we see um, parties in the, th- the fringes that have done well in, in England, where they've been able to capitalise um, on fear, um, kind of sh- show some hatred and all of that. Um, and that's not to say that there aren't genuine concerns over trade um, and over how it works. You know, my, my mum will be like, well, 
you know, I went to the shop and I couldn't find any strawberries because I'm not allowed to import any strawberries because they're all going off. You know, so there, there's some basic challenges, but but I think I think there are people with with a lot to benefit from fanning those flames of of, of the rhetoric around it because it strengthens their hand. Um, and I think a lot of people are, are moving on. The last thing I'd say about it, dead interesting. So um, a United Ireland always used to be a bit of a sacred kai um, in, in some of the circles, both positively and negatively. Um, what's really interesting is some of the conversations I've had with people where at best half a dozen, you know, 12 to one half a dozen to the other, um, United Ireland or being in the EU, and, and some people might think, well, actually, I've always been opposed to United Ireland, but not being in the EU is a bit of a problem for us. So I might put up with that to get something else. Um, and there might also be people that 20 years ago had paramilitary tattoos. So Northern Ireland's evolved. It's more complex than it ever was, but, but it's becoming a little bit more progressive. Yeah. Well, thanks for your insights on that, because it's a, it's a subject that fascinates me. Again, with the name like McKenna, you can guess that I've got Irish heritage. But it's like you, it's something, well, not like you, because you are far closer and more knowledgeable about the, the issue than I am. But it is always an area where you you struggle to, to comment too loudly because you think, well, I'm not there, I'm not involved. And so really... Perhaps that's never stopped England before, though, was it, Frank? No. I think that's the, no, that's that's the great challenge. The amount of time people over here um, that try to lecture me on things that they've read in books. Yeah. <laughs> right, listen, we've got to finish off a little bit more light-hearted. You started off with the football analogy, so you're a big red. Yeah. Is Ten Hag going to get it right for you? So he seems to be doing well. So, so I'm, um, I won't surprise you. I'm, I'm a fan of discipline. So what I really liked <laughs> is when he benched Rashi. I mean, God loves him oversleeping. That's, it's actually dead cute. Um, but but I think that um, discipline, self belief, and a bit of creativity, and uh, he, he seems to be nailing it. Like Casemiro, I was a bit like, is he past it? Martinez is only tiny, um, but but he's he's made some great signings, so doing well, I'd say. And was he right to get rid of Ronaldo? Absolutely. So I've not been. Um, this always gets me into trouble um, in in groups of friends. So. When he came back, I thought it was the wrong thing. Um, and I think I think everybody changed the game for him. I think Fernandez lost his spark. Rashi didn't know where he fitted in, um, and it all it just became about pinging the ball to him. Um, whereas actually, you start to see some football this season, a bit of passing, um, going forward. Unless Maguire is on the pitch, and it always gets backwards. But generally, sending the ball forward is a good thing in football. Well, listen, I'm an Evertonian, so you can send Maguire to us if you want. And anyone else who you don't particularly rate, they'll do great at the <laughs> It's been fantastic speaking to you, Beth. Thanks very much for joining us in the downtown there. And I will catch up with you. I know we've got you for an event very soon, so I'll catch up with you then, if not before. Thanks for your time. Thanks for having me.
So that was the leader of Manchester City Council, Beth Craig, in the downtown den, talking not just about her personal journey, career-wise, personal challenges that she's had, um, but also about her vision for the future and the confidence that she has in her city. Uh, it's always fascinating for me to listen to, to politicians, particularly those who operate at a regional level, and hear that commitment, that passion. And in Beth's case, the confidence, that genuine confidence that she has and portrays in the ability for Manchester to deliver. Uh, and sadly, um, that's not necessarily something that you hear in other towns, in other cities. I think it's safe to say that Manchester is in safe hands and we wish Beth all the very best for what I'm sure will be a long and illustrious career as the leader of Manchester City Council. This season, of course, of the Downtown Den podcast is focusing on successful female business and political leaders. And in the coming weeks, you'll hear from the Chief Executive of Birmingham City Council, Deborah Cabman. We'll have Liverpool entrepreneur Katie Stewart joining us. Uh, We've got Natalie Atkinson, who's the Chief Executive of FC United. Many more besides. So stay tuned to the Downtown Dead podcast. We'll be back next Friday with another fantastic, inspirational female business leader. See you then.